This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. And welcome to the show. How is everybody? Are we okay? (laughs) Well, that is a loaded question. Are we okay out there in podcast listening land? I don't think we are. I don't think anyone's, no one's okay. No one's okay. Un-okay. We've just been talking about how we haven't been sleeping because of the, <laughs> the low-lying dread and anxiety and anger and frustration and all of the other emotions. that. So if we're low energy this episode, you know why. Yeah. No, but we'll, we'll bring that energy up. We of will course. manage to bring that energy up. And part of bringing that energy up as well is reminding ourselves that we are not completely helpless. We can no. do things in the world mm, to be mm, of assistance. Mm-hmm. And actually that neatly ties into something that we were going to talk about anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously the world is in the middle of a movement, you know, like this is a genuine fucking movement. I feel, I hope that it's happening and it has rippled out across the whole world. We are feeling it here in Australia where we have our own very uh, awful traumatic history with black lives, (laughs) not mattering in this country historically and we realize that we're white women and we speak from a position of privilege and we have a platform and we would like to use this platform I guess to kind of acknowledge that we have a responsibility to be part of change and to be part of the solution and as such we are donating all of our June Patreon donations to two causes that we both believe in, one Australian and one American. The first one is to free her, a campaign by Sisters Inside, which is all about trying to end imprisonment basically for poverty. In This particular campaign is in Western Australia, but, you know, it has ripples outside of that, which is to help try and release women who have been incarcerated for unpaid fines. And many of these women, drastically overrepresented number of these women are single Aboriginal mothers who do not have the money to pay these fines, who will never have the money to pay these fines. And the financial (laughs) incapacity to pay these fines should not be something that they are incarcerated for that leads to the breakup of families, that leads to the compounding of intergenerational trauma. So this is a campaign that we believe quite strongly in. And also if you are here in Australia, you probably would have seen this particular campaign being, I think, much more in in the limelight at the moment as well in social media and through different outlets, which is terrific to actually see these sorts of things garnering real support at the moment. So, yes, we really want to add our, our voices, but also to put our money where our mouth is in regards to helping with that particular campaign. And the second campaign that we would also like to support, as Lauren 
Lauren said, is an international one. This one's based in the US. It's an organisation that's based out of LA and it's a not-for-profit called Dignity and Power Now, which is specifically looking at supporting incarcerated people's families and communities, helping to support them. It's not a specifically women-focused campaign like Sisters Inside is, but it is one that we feel very strongly about. And so that is the second organisation that we would like Mm. to put our money behind for this coming month and also, you know, continuing into the future Mm. as well. And of course, we understand not everyone is in the position to financially support organisations at the moment. But, you know, if you do find yourself in a position in the future, these, of course, are campaigns that are not just for the moment. You know, Mm. (laughs) these aren't campaigns that are just for now while everyone's, you know, speaking out and while everyone's really feeling it. These are campaigns that go into the future. And so if you do find yourself in a position further down the track, then we would highly, Mm. you know, obviously recommend or hope that you would be able to support as well. And we will have more details about how you can donate at the end of the show and we'll be posting on social media about it as well. So, yes, please stay with us until the end of the Mm -hmm. show, obviously, um, because, yeah, we'll give a few more details then. But also hopefully you'll just stay with us for the rest of the show because you want to hear... What we're talking story. about today. Yeah, the story. And <laughs> look, it is, I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit of a long story because it's very in-depth, fascinating, what, sometimes very difficult story. And I have barely scraped the surface of this story, despite the fact that my notes are at the very long end of what our notes typically are. But, <laughs> you know, it's an important story. And again, it's a story that needs to be told now because so much of what this woman did and so much of the work that she did, the the bravery that she had in encountering and going into the spaces that she did in order to tell the stories that she told is astounding doing it in the 1890s because of course I'm talking about investigative journalist and abolitionist and civil rights activist Ida B. fucking Wells. (laughs) Fucking is not actually really part of her name, though. <laughs> it's not it? technically, but it should be because she's truly, truly one of the most courageous and fucking ballsy women that we've covered in a while. Like when I think about what it meant for her to take some of the actions that she took to write the things that she did and to enter the spaces that she did, it mm. is truly remarkable. And mm. I'm excited to tell this story. Mm. Well, I'm excited for you to tell this story to us as well because, to be honest, she is someone who's been on our list, I think, from the very beginning. Yeah, she's been on the list for, from day, yeah, our first brainstorming session. Day yeah. <laughs> day. But the thing that people have to remember is we have hundreds of names on that list. <laughs> we do. <laughs> it's a very long list. The list never, ever gets any shorter. Um, you take one name off and the next one goes on. But also I think maybe a name that might be a little bit more familiar to listeners perhaps, mm. but I'm sure her actual life. I mean, I don't really know anything about her life beyond sort of the dot points that you've already given mm. us is is how I would think of her anyway. So I'm looking forward to going back to uh, that old time that we all <laughs> keep the, going yeah, back the thing to. Is we are going to the 19th century, but you know what? Fuck it. Fuck Who it. cares? <laughs> okay. Let's Sorry. We've been in the 14th century for a month. We can move out of there now. <laughs> We're allowed to go back to the 19th yep. century. Okay, good. We've done our penance elsewhere. Back to the 19th century. Here we go. So Ida B. Wells was born into slavery. She was born at the 
In the middle of the Civil War, July 16, 1862, in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is a town that changed hands between the Union and the Confederacy some 57 times. So it's a place of great upheaval. And just six months later, on January the 1st, 1863, President Lincoln proclaimed emancipation, freeing her parents, Elizabeth, Lizzie and James. Jim. That sounded like she had three parents, Elizabeth, Lizzie and James and and Jim. Jim. Actually, she had four parents. (laughs) Both of her two parents were born into slavery. Her father, Jim, he was the only son of his master. And yeah. And so while this didn't give him any like real, actual, tangible privilege, it didn't mean that he had certain liberties that Many others didn't. So wait, so he was the son of his master and a slave. And a slave. Yes, yeah. that's okay. right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yeah. Which which does make him a slave as well. Yes. But correct. he was apprenticed as a carpenter, which would have been a little bit of a better job, a slightly better job mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some really shit jobs. And yep. her mother, Lizzie, meanwhile, she had been separated from her family when she was very young and suffered regular violence, something that she was, was sure to tell her children about as well so that they understood, you know, where they had come from. However, so the wars ended and many families fled to the north, but the Wellses remained in Mississippi, perhaps because maybe traveling with such a young daughter would have been a big risk. But also, I mean, Jim, he was a carpenter, he was working, and they stayed on working for the family, the Bolling family, as paid employees. Oh, okay. So Ida was the first of a very large family. They had seven more children after her and the family began to really make their way up in the world. So Jim opened his own successful carpentry business and he became really influential in his community. So he was really active in the Republican Party, which needs to be noted is unrecognizable from the contemporary Republican (laughs) Party. It's changed a lot. It's changed a bit. One or two (laughs) things. that have changed (laughs) let's just say Mm -hmm. so yes very very different he was in the lincoln's loyal league which was an organization which encouraged black men to vote because black men had been granted the right to vote in 1865 something that women would not share for Mm -hmm. many many decades to come not until the 1920s he also was on the board of trustees for shaw university which was a black historical college and he served on their board of trustees and he was a member of the Freemasons. And so the Wells were doing really quite well in the world. The Wells were doing well. They sure were. And that's really remarkable because the world did not want them to do well. (laughs) No, I think the world probably wanted them to fail. Yeah. And was structured to Mm -hmm. do that because this is like, you know, post-war, many white plantation owners, they no longer had money to pay workers. At the same time, black folk needed work, obviously, not just to support themselves, but also because vagrancy laws at the time meant that they could be arrested, jailed, or fined $500, an astronomical sum at the time, if they couldn't prove that they had a white employer. Right? So literally a system designed to incarcerate people for poverty (laughs) and keep. (sighs) I can't go on rants yet. We've got a lot to get through. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It, It's almost as though structural (laughs) racism is deeply, deeply embedded in our society and goes way, way back. 
Wow. It's amazing to think how many of those structures are still in place. Then on top of that, we also have the sharecropping system where basically because these white farmers didn't have any money, they paid black workers in essentially a, a share of the crop that they produced. So it's, you know, very similar to feudalism and doesn't really allow you to, you know, mm. <laughs> engage properly economically in a way that would allow you to, to lift yourself out of poverty. Yeah, this is still in Mississippi. So this yeah. is like still in the middle of that area of America that's highly contested area Oh, yeah, absolutely, hugely. Yeah. And where so many of those ideals and ideas haven't changed with the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Like the Civil War, oh, sure, haven't changed, changed for another 150 years they still yeah, haven't that's changed. <laughs> yes, yeah, since yeah. the Civil War. But, yeah. I mean, like the Civil War may have changed some structures but the Civil War doesn't necessarily mean it changed people's thinking. no. No, it just introduced different ways of oppressing black people, basically. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But her parents did manage to get themselves out of this and they were very successful. And I think that their success and their political involvement, their aspirations really had an impact on Ida. So she enrolled at Shaw University in 1877 and was dedicated to her education. So her parents were very encouraging of this, of course, knowing that education is the best path to, you know, economic autonomy and self-sufficiency. She devoured books. She loved Shakespeare. She loved Louisa May Alcott and Bronte. She also hated applied lessons, which is basically home economics, you know, like cooking and sewing (laughs) and everything. So we already know what path she's on. Yeah. I didn't mind home economics and sewing and so forth. Also because they just felt like really bludgy lessons. Oh, I hated them. I was like, this is such a waste of time. Yeah, and that's why I can't sew anything today. Oh, I like sewing. But anyway, look, this is unrelated (laughs) to the story. (laughs) Well, we're about to get to a sad part of the story, Alicia. Uh Uh-oh. That didn't take very fucking long at all, did it? No, because... I mean, do you remember if we throw back to our first episode of the season, we had a particular epidemic break out... Do you remember what it was? Marie Laveau. Remember? Marie oh, Marie Laveau. Laveau. We had a yellow fever epidemic. Do you oh, remember the yellow fever yellow epidemic? Fever. It's here, man. It started in New Orleans. It spread out, went up to Mississippi, and things were bad. And so it wasn't long before it struck her own family. Her parents and her baby brother were all struck down by yellow fever. They died mm. within 24 hours of each oh other. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. We've had some episodes recently, despite the fact that we're trying to avoid <sighs> yeah. the reality of our current situation, we keep going back to I know. moments in time where there are I know. pandemics We've had, slash epidemics. This is now two yellow fever episodes. We had two black death episodes. Well, not episodes about them, but like featuring. Set in the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And not yeah. on purpose. In the background. And... She managed to escape this because she'd been staying with her grandmother right. on her farm mm-hmm. and so she wasn't, like, at risk. But what it meant was, I mean, she had still six surviving younger siblings and she was just 16 at the time as well. And so the Freemasons, because they were very involved with the family because of her father, they kind of intervened and were like, okay, we'll, like, help sort this situation out. And they planned to basically kind of split the children up, send the boys out as apprentices. Her sisters would be adopted except for her sister Eugenia who had disabilities who would go to the poor house? Oh, dear God. Yeah. So Wells is obviously like, no. No. Thank you. <laughs> and she told them that if she could find a way to support them financially, they should let them stay together. And the freelancers agreed. And so she went to an elementary school and she was just like, 
hey, I'm 18. For sure I'm 18. Could you <laughs> give me a job? And they did. <laughs> and so she spent the next three years teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic in a one-room schoolhouse. And she stayed in the town where this school was during the week. And then she'd travel home on the weekends to visit her siblings and to help out her grandmother, Peggy, who'd moved in to care for the children. Oh, best lie ever. Then during the summers, she went back to school. She returned to Shaw University to finish her degree. Wait, she's not even 18. No, so this is between 16 and like 19, I guess, because she was doing this for like three years. Wow. Yes. All right. But the problem is, so while she was still at Shaw University, (laughs) so she's starting to develop her intellectual, political ideas she's also starting to develop her activist tendencies which were that's because she's strong. at a university she's, yes that's what happens that is universities radicalize the young alicia they do shut them down all that left-wing no. politics should be more of it no please don't shut them down i need my job i love universities <laughs> i love them well because her career didn't end as well as she would have liked because she noticed that this other student was getting quite preferential treatment and she deduced that it might have been because this other student had lighter skin. Mm. And, of course, not one to let inequality rest where she saw it, she called out the college president. But (laughs) this didn't Uh end very well for her and she ended up being kicked out of university. Oh, for speaking Mm -hmm. up. Mm. For calling out the president for preferential treatment due to the colour of somebody's skin. Yes. See where that's going. Yeah. See how that factors into history. <laughs> yep. However, not long after she received an invitation to move to Memphis to stay with her aunt, who had been widowed also because of the yellow fever outbreak. Because her brothers were a bit older now, they were sort of settled in their jobs. They had work. They were apprenticed. And so she decided that she and her sisters would go, except for Eugenia, who stayed behind with another aunt. I guess she she needed to be cared for more. And luckily she, yeah, stayed with family still. So she continued her work as a teacher and instead she started going to summer classes at Fisk University, another historically black college in Nashville. And here she also started to engage in a lot of more cultural activities because she's in the big city now. You know, she's in Nashville. She's able to go to the theatre to attend lectures. She held debates and literary circles with her church group. And another thing that's Worth pointing out that going to the theatre then was not seen as a very respectable thing to do because it's a very Mm. rowdy kind of, you know, scene. And she was very aware of this. So while she was developing her own sense of political agency and these, you know, functioning in these intellectual circles, she was, of course, very strong-minded, but she was also very aware of the codes of behaviour that were important Mm -hmm. if she wanted to be seen as respectable. And being Mm -hmm. seen as respectable was so, so important because we've talked so much, obviously. This is basically what this whole podcast is about, the codes (laughs) of femininity. Oh, my God, what? I don't know if you noticed, but that is kind of what we do here. So if white middle-class women were hemmed in by these strict moral codes that we've talked about a lot before, you know, respectability codes, black women felt them tenfold, you know, Mm -hmm. because all of those binaries, the binary that attributes women with things like nature versus culture for men, right? For example, for black women, being associated with nature is a base form of nature. We're mm. talking mm-hmm. primitive and yeah. animalistic and 
uncontrolled, wily sexuality. It's all of the worst of those binaries, you know, those binaries taken to the extreme. And so if you want to be taken seriously and if you want to be respected as a black woman, you had this added pressure to conduct yourself to very, very high standards. Mm. And for Wells, this was really difficult because she was very headstrong. She recognised these traits within herself as being unfeminine and she was torn between her desire to be seen as respectable and to be taken seriously with her desire to speak out and partake in public discourse. And, in fact, she later reflected that, indeed, it may not have been her lighter skin that saw that girl favoured at Shaw University, mm. but maybe it was her deportment and her, like, ladylike refinement. Yeah, her ability to be more feminine, to, basically. Yeah, to exactly. more feminine. To live according to those codes and this really came to a head when in September 1883 Wells was on a train so she was sitting in the first class carriage of a train from Memphis and she had purchased her ticket just like everybody else she was in first class because she wanted to be quiet and comfortable and because she considered herself middle class because she was middle class Mm -hmm. this is really important she is a middle class woman she's educated she is college educated woman right whose family pulled themselves out of poverty. Like she belongs in first Mm. class along with everybody Mm. else. Not that like even it should be necessarily, you know, class is a whole different issue. But you know what I mean? But essentially she's, like you said, she's paid her way. She's paid her way, right? Yeah. And the conductor, he's coming along the train, checking everybody's tickets. And instead of taking hers, he hands it back to her. And he told her that she needed to move forward a car. Okay. And the car forward is the smoker car. And the smoker car is called the smoker car for two reasons, Alicia. The first reason is because this is where all the blokes hang out. They're loud. They're smoking. It's literally smoky because they're all smoking and drinking and being rowdy and bawdy right on the, you know, this is why she wants the nice, comfortable first class women's carriage. Yep. Yep. She does not want that. That's precisely what she doesn't want. But also because it's right behind the engine. And so you're getting all of the actual smoke from the engine of the train and she's like no I'm not getting up I deserve to be here just as much as everybody else I've paid my way I have a ticket so go fuck yourself she didn't (laughs) say go fuck yourself but we can imagine that's her attitude right so the conductor grabbed her bags he grabs her bags and starts moving them towards the front car expecting that she's going to follow right but she didn't (laughs) she sat there she planted her feet under the seat, locked herself in. She's like, I'm not fucking moving. Mm. So the conductor left. He went and he returned with a baggage worker and together they like grabbed her under her arms and forced her to move. And apparently she bit one of them in retaliation. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. In response, the white passengers cheered as she was removed. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So they're well, rooting. They're rooting for the conductor and the baggage yeah, worker. They're I mean, not rooting not for her. Enti- that's not really surprising. She proclaimed that she would rather get off the train than ride in the smoker car, and so that's what she did. When the train stopped at the next station, she disembarked. She got her stuff. She walked out, and she found herself a lawyer. Yeah. So <laughs> in Memphis, she filed a lawsuit citing that according to segregation laws, okay. This is where you think she's going to, like, sue them 
and be like, I paid my way, I deserve to be on that carriage. But actually mm. she used the – because segregation laws existed. Well, that's so she it. Used... Because, I mean, it's right because, I mean, this is still a time of segregation. Yeah. Like so there are still laws in place against – Yes. Against where you can sit and, and against what you can do. So instead what she did, she used these laws. Instead of fighting the segregation law itself, she sued claiming that according to segregation laws, a first-class carriage also had to be provided for black passengers. Ah, oh, like a separate one. Yes. So if she's not allowed to be on the first-class carriage with all the white people, they need to have a first-class carriage for black people. Right. Yes. Which is maybe not the suit that you would expect, but no. it fits with the time, you know, that we're, yeah. and what she had to work with. Yeah, so yeah. she also wrote a hugely popular article about this experience for a paper called The Living Way, which is a black church weekly. And this was her start into journalism. Mm-hmm. So this article was very popular. And while she did win the case, Unfortunately, (laughs) unsurprisingly, the railroad company appealed and the Tennessee Supreme Court ruled in their favour and she was then forced to pay the court costs, of course. for God's sake. They found that her suit was an effort to, quote, harass the railroad company and that her refusal to move from the car was not in good faith for her to obtain a comfortable seat for the short ride. What? Yes, and therefore... Her fight with the two employees had occurred with no reason. The court found that the two cars, the two carriages were alike in every respect as to the comfort, convenience and safety, at least for a, quote here, (laughs) mulatto passenger. Mm. A very uh, historical term of the time. Yeah, and a very loaded fucking passage there. Yes, correct. Good enough for you. Yeah. Yeah. So this decision destroyed her faith in the legal system. She realised that it could... I'm surprised she had any faith in the legal system to begin with. Oh, I think she was very idealistic, you know. Like, this is the thing. Oh, well, fair enough. I guess she had seen so much change happen in her life, you know, Mm. going from Mm. somebody who was born into slavery, living through the abolishment and deconstruction of slavery and yes we know that new structures were put up in its stead but that's probably not as visible and not as well it's going to become a major 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 factor of her life very soon but she's still young and idealistic and I think she probably Mm. still believes that people like her parents can come out of this system and really make something of themselves Mm. Mm. and they wouldn't be able to do that if there wasn't laws and structures and politics in place helping them along the way, Mm, right? mm. But now she's seen that the justice system can't be relied upon. Mm. There is no justice, which, you know, again, don't think we need to say too much about. Parallels, yeah, of course. (laughs) History repeats. We never change. Carry on. (laughs) Very blunt way of dealing with that. But no, but, no, but I mean, it's like, true. This is, but this is exactly what we find with yeah, our yeah, episodes yeah. over and over and over again. Like we're constantly going over the mm. same ground because as human beings, we don't fundamentally change. No. Anyway, that's depressing. Let's, sorry, <laughs> I'll, carry I'll on. go on with the story. So, yeah, <laughs> she continued to teach, but she had all of that success with her article, The Living Way. And so she kept writing, but this time under the pen name Eola. 
She wrote about race and politics, particularly about Jim Crow policies. And in 1886, she became an editor at the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. And this was quite a special occasion. She was very delighted. She also began working as a correspondent for the American Baptist magazine, which had an even larger circulation and paid her the lavish sum of $1 per weekly article, which, look, it doesn't sound like much, but. I'd fucking take it now. Thank (laughs) you very much. Actually, yeah, how much (laughs) do we write for free? She claimed that she never dreamed that she would be paid for her writing. So mm. she's doing it. As writers ourselves, I think we can feel. <laughs> totally feel that. We can totally feel the feel dream. That. Yeah. You're young and idealistic. And you're like, oh, yeah, writers make so much money. And then you become an adult and you're like, oh, no. Oh, oh, oh artists no. make nothing. They don't oh, make I any. See. They don't make any <laughs> no, money. Oh, I see. No, no one actually financially values us. Oh, <laughs> terrific. So Wells developed a writing style that was very straightforward. So she really... She knew who her audience was and she wanted to remain accessible to them. And and so, you know, she wrote in a, a quite clear, straightforward way. She didn't use jargon. She didn't use high convoluted language. She was just like, yep, here it is. Here's the thing. And you can recognize her style when you read it. And before we get on to some of the civil rights stuff that she wrote about, one interesting feature of her early writing was that she wrote a lot about quote unquote good womanhood. Right. So this idea that we were talking about before, Mm -hmm. how to be respectable, particularly for black women in order to put, and I quote, the best image forward and to be Mm -hmm. taken seriously. And again, she knew she didn't fit this mold despite, you know, promoting it and despite claiming it in others. And I think that this is a really interesting kind of double bind that she found herself in the double bind of black womanhood. And this, of course, still we see the ripples of this in those stereotypes like the angry black woman, you know, and all of that kind of imagery where the lines of respectability are dropped so quickly. It's just, it's yeah. But this didn't last forever in her writing. She sort of dropped this. It's really just a feature of her early writing because I think she realised that she needed to be outspoken and that that fundamentally mm-hmm. didn't fit and also because she became a suffragist. But we will come to that hey. later. She did everything. She fought for all causes. So in 1889, some armed white dudes. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, you always know that the story is going to go to fun this, places yes. when it begins with some armed white dudes. So you mean like everyone in America? Uh, mm, many of them. Yeah, those same, okay. the same dudes who were protesting outside of the, you know, with their guns yeah. saying like, don't <laughs> yeah. take my freedoms. I'm not going to wear a mask. Masks are for yeah. sissy boys. And I've come out in the street <laughs> with my AK-47 my because I'm off a- gun. Yeah, those dudes, those dudes forced 100 black folk from Marion, Alabama. They gathered them up with their, you know, guns, (laughs) marched them to the edge of town and gave them an ultimatum, okay? They could either leave on the train or the boat. And remember, this is a bunch of men standing there with guns saying, like, these are your options, gun or boat, you're not going back, right? But even segregation's not on their side here. No, Like, they're just vigilantes. They're just vigilantes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. These are just fucking white dudes having just, a power trip. They're just KKK. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so one of the men that was rounded up was a guy called J.L. Fleming, and he was the editor of the Marion Headlight. 
And so he did cross the river into Memphis. And so he and another newspaperman called Nightingale, they decided to start up their own newspaper. And Nightingale especially was very strong in his political convictions, writing that black people must contend for their rights, even if they had to die in the ditch up to their necks in blood. So very provocative and passionate Mm. sort of writing here. And the two asked Wells to join them as an editor. But this wasn't enough for her, right? She didn't just want to be an editor. She knew that she was worth more than that. And so she told them that she would only come on board if they made her a partner. And so they did. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. So she now owns her own newspaper. She's an editor. She owns a newspaper and she's writing regularly. She was writing politically. She called out both white folk and black folk for doing the dirty. Like she wrote one article that called out black members of the clergy in Memphis who were abusing their power. So, so hang on, wait, just to go back. So that white vigilante gang of mm. white supremacists actually yeah, they, did push, they kicked them, push out. them out of town. Yes, they did. And they got, they got away yeah. with that. Fleming moved to another town. He moved to Memphis because of that. Of course they got away with it. Yeah, sorry, I, just, I'm sorry I was just reconfirming yeah, yeah, yeah. in my mind. The horror of yeah. what happened? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Because yeah. we, we moved through that very quickly. I'm sorry. I'm moving to... through everything so quickly because there's so much to move through. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But yeah, mm-hmm. abs- no, but perhaps we should spend a little moment thinking about the fact that that was allowed to happen. Yeah, that they got away with that. was not an isolated incident. And I don't know that these things feel shocking but I think also necessary to be told like to be reminded of why this structure when we talk about structural racism we're talking about the fact that these are the attitudes and these are the entitlements that are at the foundation of structural racism and this is why it continues to exist because we have never just torn down the structure and restarted it and let's be honest, that's very, very difficult to do. And so even when you mm. try to clean up the edges, it doesn't mean that there's still not rot at its core. Because mm. mm. you're just building new structures on top of the old structures. Yeah. And the old structures, as you say, are, are rotten, rotten the old stru- yeah. deeply mm. rotten through the core. And this is, I'm, well, we're getting into revolutionary kind of mentalities here, but this is. Hey. It's why this, you it's need to the tear times. down the fucking system because the system is fundamentally broken because this is the shit that it is built on. And it's not just in the US. It's built the same way here. Our prime minister just came out and said that slavery did not happen in Australia. And yes. that is fucking bullshit. I, that's outrageous. That outrageous just happened today. Fucking like, lie. That's Bullshit. And in fact, I have an episode lined up for the near future, <laughs> which is precisely about that and precisely shows that that's an entire mm-hmm. lie. And so, yeah, our system is built on a rotten core. Most post-colonial countries are built on rotten, rotten cores and we can't really make change until those structures are stripped completely away. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> We're already in the ranting stage of the episode. Oh, well. 
That's all right. Yeah. Well, the ranting stage always has to happen. It does. It does. And it's we an should say that stage. we are. Uh, well, I am. I, I shouldn't speak for both of us, but I am behind the deconstruction of our system <laughs> for many, many reasons. So. Well, exactly. And I mean, this is why things like defunding the police mm. are actually not the crazy <laughs> wacky ideas that uh-huh. they sound like you know they are actually ideas that are more about just defunding the police the, that's They're actually right. about addressing the right funding the core. <laughs> yeah precisely <laughs> and funding other alternative yes. solutions to problems that aren't violence that aren't based on masculinity and control and yeah <sighs> anyway well well this i mean this is what Ida B. Wells is dedicated to, these are the causes that she is to calling out this shit. And she called it out where she saw it, both with what white folks were doing and black folks. Like I was saying before, she called out black members of the clergy in Memphis who were abusing their power. And when they threatened to have the congregations boycott her, she responded by printing the names of every minister engaging in immoral conduct. Ooh. I feel like that would be a long list. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so she's not <laughs> fucking around. And so, of course, though, with her fame comes where you are admired by many for being provocative. Of course, Mm. when you are provocative, people try to tear you down. And when you're a black woman, they try to tear you down in very particular ways. And so one of those ways is through political satirical cartoons, right? So Mm. we're all aware of satirical cartoons, right? And it's obvious. I think sometimes maybe it can be a marker that you're making a splash if you find yourself the subject of a satirical cartoon. However, typically the subjects of these cartoons are, you know, powerful white men, journalists and public figures, politicians, etc. And what they are called out for is often not the same as her. So cartoons about her were very sexist and racist is the very oh. blunt way of, of saying it. So That has not changed one bit. No. You look at the satirical cartoons of any female leaders in yeah. the last hundred years. I mean, I'm you just thinking about like cartoons Julia Gillard like, and the chicken thigh legs. Yeah, exactly. Or someone like Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Like the way that satirical cartoons attack female leaders yeah. is incredibly And imagine that again. For like, a woman of colour. Exactly. It's that tenfold again. It's like you get the worst of it. And so, so she found herself being mocked and devalued in ways that really set her apart from her male contemporaries in this way. And, of course, another consequence of her outspokenness, in this case it was her criticism of the conditions of local black schools is in the fact that they were not being funded properly, did not have adequate resources. Again, it's been 150 fucking years, people. Come on. And so she lost her job as a school teacher. But this did allow her to write full time. So, you know. Is that a silver lining? It's a silver lining. Maybe. Maybe more than a silver lining because this is really the work that she needs to be doing. And Mm -hmm. this brings us to two very, very important pieces that she wrote. And the telling of these pieces is going to be difficult. And so I I genuinely do want to give out a content warning right now because we're about to start talking about lynching and that is not something that is easy to listen to, but I Mm. think it is important to discuss because Mm. of the implications and it's important to confront the horrors of history Mm. and not glaze over them. it's part of her story. It's a very important part of her story. Not. Yeah. And so in 1892, three black men, 
Tom Moss, Calvin McDonnell, and Willa Stewart started a grocery store. It was called the People's Grocery. And it happened that this grocery store was nearby to a white-owned grocery store that had, up until this point, had a monopoly. Now, Wells and Tom Moss, they were very good friends. They taught together at Sunday school, and in fact, Wells was the godmother to Moss's daughter. And so one day, there was a game of marbles happening out the front of the store. It was between a mix of white kids and black kids out the front of the store, and it escalated. And as it escalated, adults became involved. And soon, it became quite the scene, and it had to be broken up by the police. Now, this came on the back of other kind of agitations that had been occurring between the the owners of the two grocery stores. The white owner filed a complaint and he and a policeman went to the people's grocery. What was his complaint? I guess a complaint about the ruckus. I don't know. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so he asked for Stuart, one of the owners, to come out, but he wouldn't. McDonald was the one who opened the door to them and so he pistol whipped him. And McDowell responded by picking up the gun that he'd just been pistol whipped with and shooting at Barrett, who was the white grocery store owner. So short version, at 10 o'clock in the evening on Saturday night, the police dressed in civilian clothes. Okay, let's repeat that. 10 o'clock in the evening on a Saturday night, dressed in civilian clothing, went around the back of the people's grocery to serve a warrant. That no, okay. that doesn't make any sense. Right? So That's not how you serve a warrant? Yeah, it's 10 p.m. <laughs> They're not in uniform and they came around the back of the grocery store. And in light of recent events, that sounds like a lie to me. Well, the owners believed that they were being vandalized because they had been vandalized by white people who didn't want them there before, right? Because they said there had been agitations between the two kind of grocery store owners. So they thought that this was vandalism and retaliation for what had happened earlier. And they had previously consulted with a lawyer who confirmed for them that they did legally have the right to defend their property if Mm -hmm. it should come under attack or be vandalised. And so they shot at the men because they thought that they were being burgled or vandalised. Which I'm just going to say they probably actually were. Like very I'm sorry, possibly. Like, I yeah. really, I don't believe that or law enforcement at the would very go around least, to serve a warrant. That to me, that sounds like the excuse you make up afterwards. Or well, why were you at there? The very least, oh, we were there to serve a warrant. <laughs> no, you fucking weren't. Or, you clearly weren't there to do that. Or at the very least, they were there to agitate, to stir them up. To, yeah, you know, they're not presenting themselves as police officers. They know that they're going to be misidentified. They know that they're acting like vandals, and that they're. Pushing them into violence, which again is something that is happening right now in the protests. It's literally mm. happening right now. As we record, this is happening that police are pushing people into violence and intimidating them into acting in ways that they can then arrest them for. So they shot at them because why the fuck wouldn't they? They thought that they were under attack. And then the next night, the police went back to arrest them. And they went out arresting every single black man they came across, regardless oh, yeah. of whether or not they were at the grocery store. Because they all look the same. Yeah. They all match And the they're all in on it together, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because there is only one description, black yeah. male. Yeah. That's the description. And then they did the same thing again the next night, only this time they were accompanied by more fucking armed white men and they broke into people's homes arresting, quote, 
Conspirators. Of what? Conspirators yeah. of what? I, fuck no. Like knows. a ruckus from a game of fucking marbles? Yeah. yeah. Apparently. And so all of these men were locked in the jail together. They were kept in irons. They were forced to stand throughout the night, throughout their entire incarceration. They were denied visitors. The city magistrate ordered that all black civilians relinquish their firearms and issued a court order forbidding the sale of firearms to black men. And then in the early hours of the morning, several days later, a mob of white men entered the jail. They took Moss, McDowell and Stewart at gunpoint. They marched them a mile out of town and they shot and killed them. So Moss's wife, Betty, she was five months pregnant and he was killed with his Sunday school sermon in his pocket. And after they shot McDowell, they gouged his eyes out. Oh. So like I said, the details are brutal and that's the short version of the details because we don't need more than that, but we need enough. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it's important. To reflect on that and to confront history, you know, we have this thing in Australia called the history wars, which is the fact that Hmm. our political system does not want to confront our history and deny our history as our prime minister did today, literally. Acknowledge that we have a history. So we, we need to confront history. That's really important. In 1892 alone, mobs lynched 241 people and 80% of this was white on black violence. Newspaper accounts praised the white men's swift and orderly administration of justice. and none of justice. Yeah, uh, exactly. And none of the men were arrested or charged with murder. And despite the fact that there were eyewitness accounts who could go to the newspapers and say, like, here's exactly what happened and this is why these men are heroes for doing this, When asked, oh, but who did it? Those same witnesses are like, oh, I don't know. Nobody knows who did it. So they're at once able to give all of this detail and yet completely obscure who did it so they never have to actually properly face, you know, any kind. Not that there would even be any legal Mm. ramifications really. Well, hey, it doesn't even matter if there's video showing you doing it these days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And thousands of African-Americans came to mourn at their funerals and – Wells was obviously very distressed, distraught by this. She was friends with Betty, the widow. And this really was a career defining campaign for Wells. So she wrote editorials about the lynching and then she wrote her first research piece on lynching, which was called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. Oh, okay. So that's actually like, that's a book that's still in publication. Is Is that right? Yes. Because I have heard of that. This is the first of two very important pieces on lynchings in the South. Mm -hmm. So this one, what she did was she, she examined many, many, many hundreds of accounts of lynchings in the South. And she found that rape was most often used to justify the violence. How was rape used to justify the So basically violence? they would claim lynchings occurred because black men raped white women. Raped white women. Okay. And she argued that white people sure. used this belief of black men's sexual desire as a socially acceptable excuse to murder them. And Really what was happening is that this alleged rape of white women, and let's be clear that she found in the majority of cases it was not a case of rape. In many of these cases these were either consensual relationships, maybe conducted in secret, or in far more cases could be a case involving making eye contact. Yeah, exactly, walking past someone in the street. exactly. 
And she, so she found that really this was an attempt to disenfranchise and suppress black economic mm. progress. Mm. Unlike all of those rapes of black women that were mm-hmm. never, ever even... Exactly. She drew attention to this as well. She examined the disparity between the consequences for alleged rape of white women versus black women. She was very aware of this. And she argued if the issue was this moral crime, why were white men not ever, mm. ever treated the same way? Yeah. Why were there not lynchings of male rapists all the time? After all, yeah. white men raped black women often and fucking didn't hide it, <laughs> you know, like. But again, the excuse for that she found is that black women are seen as more sexually promiscuous, you know, more well, naturally. Yeah, that's right prone than white women and then and so it's not perceived as a crime in the same way yeah yeah I actually just on that sorry I just want to say I recently watched a really harrowing but worthwhile obviously to watch documentary called The Rape of Reese Taylor which deals with exactly this Mm. issue and it deals with this issue like 40 years after the period of history that we're talking about Mm. so clearly this is a problem that you know has never gone away and for anyone who's interested in watching that it is of course a very difficult watch but I think it's still available to watch on NITV Mm. here in Australia sorry just because you're talking about yeah 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 to say that definitely listeners if you are in Australia you can definitely still watch that at the moment anyway yeah carry on but yeah I mean we should learn all we can about these things really and you should read these two pamphlets because she followed this up with the 100 page pamphlet the red record which again went back into the prevalence of lynching and white on black violence and so you know she she went to the places where these lynchings occurred and she collected data like she had statistics related to lynchings from 1882 to 1895. She analysed graphic accounts from white newspaper reports and in particular she drew attention to the language of newspaper reports and how they described Mm. black men inspired by the fact that she knew that these men who ran the people's grocery were good men. She knew them, right, and she knew how they had been portrayed in the media. And so this inspired her to really delve deep into this issue and look at the language. And her research, you know, looked at 728 lynchings. And she also found that there had been a 200% increase in lynchings over this period of time. So not surprising. Mm. And, you know, another thing that she found is that, shockingly, the way that the newspapers reported these alleged rapes were often outright lies. There were so many errors in their reportings that they were basically fiction. They just Mm. couldn't be trusted at all. Mm. And so her writing was mm, not popular with white people. Oh, what a surprise. (laughs) And a mob stormed her office of the free speech and they destroyed it. So they looted it. And what they didn't loot was confiscated by the sheriff and she was driven out of town. And she knew that, you know, ultimately appealing to reason and emotion, you know, so using her statistics and data plus compassion wouldn't actually change white people's love for lynching. (laughs) Because would not actually achieve anything. (laughs) Because there was too much, there was too much for black folks to gain economically for them to allow this to happen. You know, and this is what what we mean about the system is structured to continually disenfranchise people of colour. And that is why 
using very logical, reasonable arguments coupled with anger and compassion is never going to convince people of this because there's too much for them to lose in that. Mm -hmm. Or not Mm -hmm. even – this is the thing, actually. There's not actually anything for them to lose. There's nothing to actually lose. There's not anything to lose. There's only something for somebody else to gain. But, of course, you want that hierarchy to exist. That feels like a loss. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. Somebody else's equality feels like a loss. Yeah. Because then you no longer have power over that group. Yeah. And so she also knew that if white people were trying to control the economic freedom of black people, black people could retaliate in kind. So she urged them to boycott white businesses and to leave the South for the West to actually, you know, hurt them where it really hurts in their pockets. Yeah. And actually Moss's last words had been for people to go West. You know, to find freedom in the West. Sorry, just to, on that point, this is a really important thing as well, right? Because this is about for a country that's built so heavily on capitalism mm. that's gone way too far. Yes. Um, <laughs> you jumped off the like, capitalism cliff there, guys. <laughs> yeah. Like this idea of like hitting them where them where it hurts is economically. Yeah. And because also in a time, in a historical time, where so many of the people who did the shopping for not only their own families, oh, but also who like yes. went out and did the shopping for the white families mm-hmm. they worked mm-hmm. for, like so many of the people who went out into mm. the world with the money to spend, and that was even if it wasn't their yeah. own money, they were and Black by women. and large they were women. Yep. They were women of colour. And why do you think the owner of the white grocery store got so fucking upset? Because he wasn't just losing exactly. business to black families, he was losing them to white families because the women who worked for them were shopping at the black grocery. Precisely. And so that's a really interesting idea about this sort of like disequilibrium of power because in a lot of ways there is a lot of power in who's actually spending the money where, Mm -hmm. right? And this is how you can fight back. And we still do that today, you know. We still tell people all the time, you know, you you make your most effort with where you do and mm. don't spend mm-hmm. your money. Mm-hmm. Essentially with where you don't spend your yeah. money is just as important as yep. where you do. And so these women who were the ones looking after households, who were spending yes. the household money, because they were the ones who had the power to affect business. Ironically, and this is one of the great logical fallacies of the welfare system, which is a whole different fucking issue, but the money that belongs to the poorest people in society does the most. It has the mm. most economic benefit because it is spent immediately it is spent locally, mm-hmm. it is then taken yep. by that immediate local person and spent again and then it's spent yep. again and it's spent again. And so that $10 that they have spent at the grocery store ends up becoming $100, $1,000 worth of economic growth as it changes yep. hands and buys more and more products with that same fucking $10. Yep. Instead of it sitting in some fucking rich white dude's bank account doing fuck mm-hmm. all. Sorry. Yeah. This is a. (laughs) No, but I mean, that's a. But I think that that's such a key idea that we gloss over. Like, we don't think about that. Like, we don't actually think about the power behind. It doesn't seem like a powerful thing to think about where you spend $5. Yeah. But it, it actually is. is. It actually is an incredibly it powerful is. thing to think about where you spend yep. $5 because it makes, <laughs> as you said, like the impact that it then compounds yes. makes such yep. a huge And obviously difference. we're not economists and we've reduced a very complex thing into a few brief sentences, so forgive us for that. But it's sure, the, the but point. it does make sense. Come on. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, let's get back to Ida. <laughs> and it has had a historical impact. It's exactly. exactly the case that you're talking exactly. about. Yes. So along with this economic, because she was smart, she knew, like, so that's, you know, economics and her second weapon, international shame. <laughs> you know, mm. she knew that she couldn't, mm-hmm. again, talk to Americans about this problem because they were just so fucking wrapped up in their own warped system. So she went to Britain and she went on a speaking tour. She went on two, actually, two speaking tours in 1893 and then in, again in 1894. And she was amazed to find that in Britain people treated her like a person. <laughs> wow. well, imagine. It must have been shocking is, <laughs> to have people take her seriously and listen to her. We've seen this in, in quite a few of our past episodes mm-hmm. as well. As soon as people go, yep, black women going to Europe and suddenly they're like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> That's not to say that Europe is perfect by any means, but no, it God, is not no. the same. It is not the same. Yeah, I mean those racial tensions and those racial mm. divisions play out very, very differently, obviously, in every yeah, country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they in play the out. That's not to say that they don't play out, but, yeah, it's a different thing. Mm. And so she toured England and Scotland and Wales. She addressed thousands of people. They took her message seriously because basically they were able to divorce what she was saying from what she looked like. You know, they respected mm. her as an intellectual. They didn't just see like, oh, look, there's a, a black woman talking. Isn't that a marvellous sort of, you know, wonder? What a marvel yeah. of the world. Instead they're like, Who holy knew? shit, did you guys know what's happening in the US? Like they were shocked. Like her audiences mm. were absolutely appalled and she used photographs of actual lynchings from her pamphlet to stir her, her audiences and, and they were stirred, like it worked. She became, you know, the subject of a lot of press, both in Britain and at home. The articles in Britain were very, very different from the articles in the US, mm-hmm. which were very hostile. She was called a lot of very slanderous, slanderous things. The New York Times, for example, and I'm bringing them up for a reason, they called her a, and again, this is a quote, this is a quote, it's an awful, awful quote. But I'm going to bookend this with something at the end. They called her a slanderous and nasty, nasty nasty-minded mulatress, which kind of makes it difficult to know if this was written in the 1890s or a tweet by Donald Trump. (laughs) But yeah, I like it. Can you? He would tweet that slanderous, nasty, nasty nasty-minded. Nasty, nasty. I can't think of any other words. I'll just use nasty Mm. again, Mm. and I'll probably spell it wrong. But she was growing support and increasing awareness. And in the meantime, so in between her two trips, she was in Chicago and this was just before the World's Fair. And so she and Frederick Douglass, who is another very important abolitionist and activist, if you don't know him, they decided to, you know, really bring attention to the fact that African-Americans were banned from exhibiting at the fair. So they wanted everybody to boycott it again because they know... Wait, sorry, what year was this? 1893, 1894. And, yeah, so they knew economics works, they're going to boycott, and they were going to make a booklet, which was printed in like four or five languages, called The Reason Why the Coloured American is Not in the World Columbian Exhibition. I was going to say that's a very forward thing to do, progressive, to print it in all those different mm. languages, but it was the world's It's fair, the world's so fair. So you would. Yeah, it had worked in Britain. So they're like, okay, we've got an audience here. Like people are actually yeah. genuinely shocked about these things. And it drew the attention and contributions of a lot of other prominent black writers and activists. And it was distributed amongst tens of thousands of people at the fair. And one of the writers who contributed was the attorney and activist Ferdinand L. Barnett. 
And he was a widower. He had two sons. His first wife, Molly, had been the first black woman to graduate from the University of Michigan. Mm. And Wells, she didn't write much about him, but they courted. And the two married in 1895. And I think these two saw in each other an equal, right? They're Mm. both Mm -hmm. intellectuals. They're both passionate activists and reformers. And so she knew that he was somebody who would share not just her home but her life's work. And that was super important to Wells because she hadn't been really interested in marriage until this point because she didn't want to lose her identity Mm -hmm. and her work to the role of wife and mother. Yeah. And he was, you know, very much on the same page. He wanted a wife who would be his equal and who would also share his life work. So I think they found a very, very good match in each other in that way. It was a match of equals, really. Mm. So much so that Wells, in 1895, kept her own name. She kept hey. her own name. I mean, she hyphenated it, but she still kept her own name. That's so, all right. Hyphenated? Yeah. That's good. That's <laughs> Which I think is amazing. I like it. She also wore a white dress with a satin train and she walked herself down the aisle. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. They had four more children, Charles, Herman, Ida and Alfreda. Herman. So the balance of motherhood became quite difficult for her because, like I said, she didn't want to lose herself to this role. And she was very passionate about remaining dedicated to, you know, her life's work. But it was hard. She never really felt comfortable as a mother. And she wrote about this discomfort and she wrote about the difficulties of basically splitting herself between, Mm. you know, her two roles. But, you know, she still did, like she took her baby Charles on tour with her, you know, and sometimes she would lecture with him as a baby there with her, you know. Yeah. So she's doing it all. Yeah, and this is something that we forget, I think. We kind of think of this kind of like, can women have it Mm -hmm. all as this very modern sort of idea or this very modern problem Mm -hmm. because we have this idea that, well, you know, all women did in the past was have families and that's all they wanted to do. So it wasn't a problem for them, you know. They didn't have to deal with that. It's like, oh, bullshit. Bullshit. Of course they did. Obviously they did. Like this is a problem that women have faced forever. And, well, (laughs) very telling of that is the fact that moving on to my next, you know, point to make is that Wells was all also a suffragist, you know, so not only was she a civil rights activist, but she was a dedicated suffragist. And you'd think that, I mean, she had so much going on already, like raising a family, abolitionist work, you know, agitating and strategizing economic boycotting of racist enterprises is what I wrote, but it's not enough (laughs) because she's got more causes. She's got more things to bite off. Do. In 1896, she founded the National Association of Coloured Women's Clubs. But, okay, there was a problem within the suffrage movement, and I don't think it's going to take very much guessing to figure out what that problem is. Do you want to guess what the problem is, Alicia? I'm going to guess that the problem was that the suffragist movement was a little bit racist. Mm, it was a little bit white. Yeah, we yeah, could yeah. say. It's very, very... There wasn't much intersectional no, feminism no. going on. No, there wasn't. And look, Wells is so ahead of her time in every aspect of her life, but perhaps none more so than her calling out the suffrage movement for its lack of intersexual feminism. Of course, she didn't call it intersexual feminism, but this is what it was. She publicly accused the movement of overlooking black women in the 18 fucking 90s it took us over a hundred years to get back to intersectional feminism yeah a hundred fucking years and she was doing 
Anyway, she took particular <laughs> beef like with Frances Willard, who was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And oh, yeah, yeah you love it. I love me a Christian Temperance <laughs> Union. So this was yes. a, a suffragist group who promoted both <laughs> suffrage and temperance, as in not drinking. So they brought the two together, the, the idea that if we get rid of society's ills, you know, and drinking, of mm. course, is mm. one of society's gravest ills. It's a vice. It's a vice. Uh, the sobriety could lead us to this perfect society where women magically achieve equality, which there is a little bit of logic to this because particularly of the time and, again, still today, drinking is mm. a factor in things like domestic violence. And so mm. that's one of the th- kind of ways that they address this. If you reduce drinking, you reduce yeah. domestic violence. Fair enough, but I would also say that that's victim blaming. But anyway. This is something that we covered in depth as well when we looked at Carrier Nation, mm. who was one of the uh, most exciting temperance. <laughs> she sure was. She loved Fighters. smashing up a bar. She fucking did. Anyway. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about the temperance movement mm. and how fucked that could But you're be. right. There is definitely that correlation, though, yeah. the idea between, you know, domestic violence and alcoholism. Yeah, and of really problematically, <laughs> Willard, she blamed African Americans for the defeat of temperance legislation. She Whatever. said – she comes to that conclusion? Okay, I'm going to give you another awful quote here. So she said of the black community that – Quote, the grog shop is its centre of power. What is she basing that on? I don't know. Probably stereotypes. Oh, yeah. You know, of drunk black people. All those drunken black stereotypes. Wow. But like literally. But like literally. Yeah, which is so (laughs) incredible. Are you talking about the US or are you talking about Australia? Today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She also, so the, the two women both went on a lot of lecture tours and they were in the same circles. And so Wells drew attention to the fact that Willard also never addressed issues of racism or of lynchings in her talks. And in a red record, Wells publicly denounced Willard for her racist rhetoric, particularly for language that seemed to incite violence against African-Americans. So she was doing a lot of the work that black women continue to do within feminism, basically calling out white privilege and white blindness and cognitive bias and, you know, all of these kinds of things. So instead, she created the Alpha Suffrage Club to advocate for black women's suffrage and to teach black women how to engage in civics and politics. And that brings us, we're going to skip ahead in time a little bit, to 1913 and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And they were holding a parade in Washington, D.C., a suffrage parade. And so together with the delegation of suffragists from Chicago, Wells was going to go along to the march. However, (laughs) the NAWS decided that they wanted the delegation to be white and that African-American suffragists needed to march at the back with the, quote, coloured delegation. Oh. Yeah. Well, fuck that. Is again one I think <laughs> well, Ida B. Wells was saying to herself. Yeah, so she, I mean, she fought the decision first, and she apparently had this really emotional speech where she proclaimed through tears that if the Illinois women do not take a stand now in this great democratic parade, then colored women are lost. So, this mm. is a really important movement for them to be a part, to be visible in, right? Visibility is so important here. And because that didn't help they still were like no you go to the back 
she, she decided that she was going to wait in the crowd for the parade to start. She just kind of blended in with the crowd. She's there as a supporter. And then as they were coming up, she just calmly walked out and joined the front of the march and just stood side by side with them and marched all the way with them. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And just awesome. this is a little aside that came up in my research, by the way, Susan B. Anthony, famous suffragist. Oh, yes. One of the leaders of the NWSA, the National Women's Suffrage Association. She and Wells did work together. Okay. Okay. They were associated with one another, but Anthony did not support racial integration. And I think it's really important to call that out. She believed that getting the support of influential Southern women was more important than supporting black Mm. women's right to vote. So, Yes. Again, something that we've covered multiple times with multiple Mm. different context not just context of race but context of gender and sexuality and all sorts of contexts where it's this idea of like well you know what that's all well and good yeah but we're just going to take care of this first Mm. we're just going to take care of ourselves first and get things working for white women Mm. and then when that's all sorted well then we might come back for you yeah like this concept of Equality happening in stages, which of course is absolutely ridiculous Mm. because equality can't be a staged process. You can't have stage one, stage two, stage three of equality. That's not what equality is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's not the definition of the word. So it's something that we've seen so many times and in lots of the women that we've looked at. And of course, you know, everyone's imperfect. So it's, I suppose in a lot of ways because, as you said, Anthony is such a... She's such a celebrated figure. Such I mean, a celebrated you know. figure. But that doesn't mean she's also not a flaw. No, figure. it doesn't mean that she didn't have her own racial bias. Absolutely. Mm. Totally. And we need to be aware of that. We need to call that out when we see it. Yes. Yeah, so as I said, she was a part of these various suffragist organisations. But while she kind of had a lot of leadership roles, she came to be seen as a little bit too radical. And this caused tension within some of the groups that she was a part of. And the suffragists weren't the only ones who thought that she was a bit of a risk. She was also part of the founding committee for the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, which was an organisation begun in 1909, dedicated to advancing justice for African-Americans. And it remains an important organisation today. Day. And among its other founding members were the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary White Ovington and Moorfield Story. However, her name was excluded from the list of founders. And there is a couple of different stories as to why this is. So Du Bois wrote that Wells chose to be left off the list, but Wells wrote that Du Bois purposefully left her out because she was seen as too radical. Mm. And Du Bois, is, he was also kind of concerned with respectability and wanting to be mm-hmm. seen as, you know, playing by the rules, I guess. And we know Wells, yeah. she's an agitator, you know. She might have cared about that once upon a time, but she realised that, that was going to limit her and she yeah. stopped giving a shit about that. And, I mean, not giving a shit completely, but she realised that her other causes were more important. And also... During World War One, the U.S. government put her under surveillance because they believed her to be a race agitator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and her controversial nature also lost her the presidency of the National Association of Coloured Women in 1924 to another woman, Mary Buthane, who was seen as the kind of safer, more diplomatic choice. What do they even mean by a race agitator? I think the that war? they're worried that she's going to stir up. I mean, I don't know what it has to do with the war specifically, but I suppose that they're worried that she's going to stir up shit. She's going to start, you know, 
riots, global movements of protests that are oh, going to call for the dismantling of various systems, perhaps. God forbid that should happen. Yeah. Because she had done things in the past. Like she had protested at the White House. You know, she talked God to forbid that should happen. Yeah, exactly. And like, because this is all stuff that I've sort of had to gloss over, but like she was doing a lot of that kind of stuff. She was very, very political. And I mean, actually during the last years of her life, she ran for the Illinois State Senate as an independent. She was no longer quite so in love with the Republican Party, Mm. but she didn't do very well, unfortunately. So by that stage, obviously, though, they had the vote. That was a bit later, so it would have been around the same time that. Yeah. So, yeah, it must have been just after in the 1920s. But, yeah, that was unsuccessful. And actually, like, at the end of her life, she was sort of, her influence was really waning. She never completed a biography and she kind of felt like, there was this kind of group, this new generation coming through who didn't really know who she was. She was a bit outdated by this time, I suppose, Mm. and a lot of the issues she was fighting for had moved into different spaces and she was no longer the voice that was seen as being behind them. And then on March 25th, 1931, at the age of 68, she died from illness related to kidney failure. Oh. Yeah. And that, I mean, Jesus, she... (laughs) Well, she covered a lot in those She covered so much. And like I said, there's so much more that I couldn't get to. But I will say so much of what I've talked about today came from the biography Ida B. Wells, Social Reformer and Activist by Christina DeRocher. So if you want to know more, check out that book, read it. It's wonderful and it's got so much information. It's got a lot of primary sources in there as well. And yeah, find out about all the extra stuff that I didn't have time to include. And as one last little point, because she's obviously remembered now for her very brave investigative journalism, for her campaigning, her activism, her support of civil rights, of suffrage. And there are many organizations awards in her honor and named after her but something I wanted to mention in particular was that so the New York Times who I mentioned earlier they published some pretty nasty things about her during her lifetime but they printed an obituary for her in their overlooked series in 2018 so perhaps they're trying to make amends for past sins Mm. with their obits I know well I mean that's what that series is dedicated to making amends yeah Yeah. (laughs) so that's actually another good read that obituary is written by caitlin dickerson so that's another good source if you'd like a much briefer recap of her significance oh sorry i just got that overwhelmed feel oh (laughs) wow so much i told you there's a lot in this one yeah, it's a long well, one, I'm I mean, sorry. absolutely. But I think the fantastic thing is, is that so much more than the very, very sort of cursory understanding I had yeah. of who she was and her impact and what she did, which, yeah, now I realize was entirely cursory. It was just dot points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also, like, I noticed a couple of other podcasts have come out with episodes about Ida B. Wells this week. And I was like, no, I'm already, <laughs> I'm already doing it. Like, for example, my favorite murder their most recent episode that I just listened to because I was like, no, why? Why are you doing the same subject as me? But even that, I really wanted to give more detail to fit in as much as I could and especially to touch on some of the the things that aren't perhaps as mm, prominent, as prominent in, yeah. in some of those stories. 
like her issues of with respectability and the way that she really struggled with that through her life and the way that she mm. struggled with motherhood and, you know, these things that make her really human and complex and deep because she did have all of these internal battles at the same time as she was fighting these very, very external battles, you know? Yeah. And I think that idea of respectability and sort of finding how you are represented within a culture is obviously like it's a double-barreled one Mm. and in somebody like Wells's case so much so and we've covered that a little bit before you know we've talked about those sort of issues in the lives of um, many of the women that we've looked at you know from Josephine Baker to Bessie Smith like those ideas Mm. of of respectability are so much more heightened for women of colour because it is this idea of it's respectability across not just your own culture but Mm. respectability across what is the dominant culture in the country that you live in. If you live in a country where that dominant culture is a white culture, then not only do you have to think about how that functions in your own culture, you also have to think about how that functions in that broader majority culture. And that's, of course, you know, the whole idea of privilege is that if you are already a white woman in that position, you don't have to think about that. You you still, sure, you might have to think about those issues across that white majority culture. Yeah. And that, but that gender divide. Yeah, and that gender divide. But there's nothing in that white majority culture that suggests that you should have to think about your respectability in relation to any other culture mm, mm. because you're already in you're already, you're already in, in it. Yeah. In the majority yeah, culture. Yeah. And so this is precisely the idea that I think that, you know, people lose sight of mm. so quickly is that it's actually multi it's so much more yeah. multifaceted for other people yeah. than it is for those people who are already mainly just functioning in one majority culture yeah. where that's it if you fuck up you're not seen as representative of your whole culture no that's right <laughs> you yeah. know like if a white woman fucks up she's i mean she's not representing all white women <laughs> You know, like it's not contributing to a particular stereotype of, yeah, of yeah. white like women. Like you were saying with that stereotype of the angry black woman. Yeah. Right? It's like that kind of comes back to this idea of like, well, that reflects on your entire mm. community. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it is, I think, in the moment that we're in now, reminding ourselves of yep. those layers and those complexities and the yeah. most important thing that we can do. Yeah. And especially like as white women, and we know many of our listeners are also white women. We know. We know mm. that that's our largest demographic, demographic in our audience. Yeah. And Fortunately, not, it's not our only demographic though, thankfully. It's not. it's not. Because I'd hate to think that we were only ever talking to ourselves, if yeah. you know what I mean. But, but think I think it is important <laughs> to recognise that in ourselves, right, and for all yeah. of us as white yeah. women to yeah. take responsibility for this and yeah. to not – Think of this as being an issue that doesn't belong to us because it does. We are complicit and we have responsibilities. Yeah. And also I think, you know, something that we've touched on before is that makes the ground for us as podcasters tricky because we always want to sort of remind or we always Mm. want to sort of say that, you know, we're not trying to speak for anyone yeah but diversity is so important to us and because diversity is so important to us it means that we can't just tell stories that are like our own Mm. we have to tell stories that are outside of our experience or outside of our knowledge and so that is why we tell these stories but I, I think and I hope and I can't say that we do this for sure but I hope that it's clear that that's how we frame this and that our we do in-depth research we do research these things quite 
thoroughly, you know, as, to the extent that we can. We're not in the archives because we don't have, to, you know, <laughs> quite that. We don't have those access and capacities, we're stuck but, in our houses. You know, we, we treat this very seriously. Yeah, I think it is obviously now more than ever that idea is one that we have to sort of constantly mm. remind ourselves of and one that we have to constantly engage with, as you say, Lauren. And of course, you know, this brings us back to this idea of why we're hoping that many of our listeners out there, if they haven't already done what they mm. can to sort of support causes at the moment, that, you know, this might be a rallying cry that hopefully if you're able, of mm. course, it's always about if you're able, because not everyone is, that you might be moved to perhaps donate to one of the causes that we will be donating to this month. And those details you'll be able to find on our social media networks and mm. on our website But as just well. to reiterate, if you do want to contribute, it's Free Her by Sisters Inside. Uh, they have a GoFundMe page for this particular campaign and we're going to share that link. And, of course, Dignity and Power Now. So please, I mean, you can choose to support whichever organisations you choose, of course, but these are... It doesn't, yes, yeah. that's right. It doesn't have to be the ones that we're donating to. But, yeah, these are the ones we feel are very important to us. And we hope that you share that with us. <laughs> so this month, rather than doing our little spiel to tell you to give us money at Patreon, <laughs> save that money, give it elsewhere. Yeah. Or know that if you are supporting us on Patreon this month, you are also supporting these causes. And of course, as always, if you'd like to catch up on our past episodes, they're all there for you. Poor Catherine of Siena, who was our last episode um, <laughs> has gone a little bit under the radar because, well, quite frankly, more important things have happened than um, old Catherine. Mm. Sorry, Catherine. <laughs> but, of course, that episode is there if you want to catch up on the mm. last episode. And as is our entire backlog. Yep. There's a lot of them now. <laughs> how many are there? I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know how to count them. And if you combine them with the Patreon episodes, we must have done like over Oh, yeah. I think surely. so. We should, we should do a proper count. We must have done heaps. When you're on there looking at our episodes, of course, if you do want to leave us a review or subscribe, please do and, you know, tell your friends. We'd really appreciate that. And as always, we'll give a big shout-out to India Hui for the music, Brendan Davies for the sound, and Dan, our executive producer. And that's all from us, so look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and dismantle the system. And we will see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Bye.